All right. If you have your Bibles, turn to Jude 3. We're starting there because it, we're, we're not, we're not going to hang out there today because we've, we've done that already, but we need it for background. So, Jude 3. He writes to the church and he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own a position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire." So we have been walking through Jude's letter <clears throat> to the churches. And like his brother James, Jude often presents us with some difficult topics, some hard truths, so to speak. After uh, Jude greets us, greets his readers, and he prays the Lord's mercy and the peace and love for us, he tells us in verse 3 the reason for his letter contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now let me just briefly expound on that. We've covered it, but just for the sake of, of getting our minds in the right place, contend for the faith. In other words, be watchful against false doctrine, being ready to make a defense against false teaching and those who speak twisted things. Or be ready to say to the brother or sister who has wandered from the truth, you must repent and come back to the truth. Or be ready to live and call others to live in accordance with the sound teaching of the Bible. Or how about this one? Strive to follow Christ in all things and then insist that anyone who bears the name of Christ strive to do likewise. You're going to call yourself a Christian, you ought to act like it. You ought to believe like it. So Jude gives us a challenging command in verse 3 to contend for the faith. And the implication of that command is far-reaching. He says there is, there's one faith, the faith, that was once for all delivered to the saints. Doctrine matters, church. <clears throat> I'll harp that, I'll beat that drum until we get it. What we think matters, not just what we say, not just how we behave, but how we believe. It matters that we think rightly about God, lest we fall into a, a very grave and sinful error of worshiping a God of our own making. If the God that we worship is not like the God in the Bible, then we are worshiping a different God. If we have attributed characteristics and traits personality traits, what have you, attributes 
to God that are not part of His Word. We are worshiping a God that He has not told us. We are worshiping a false God, one that we have made up. And so doctrine matters. Right thinking about God matters. If you were here Wednesday, you heard me talk about uh, worship music, Christian music, and why I, I tend to be a bit more critical about Christian music than I am about secular music. Why Christian music, when, it, when I hear error in it, it, it just rubs me much more harshly than secular music. That's because all secular music is mostly godless. But Christian music purports to tell me or teach me something about the God that I worship. And unfortunately, so many people get their theology, their idea of who God is from the songs that we sing. So when we sing wrongly, when we worship wrongly, we start to develop an image of God that is not right. Right? That's why it it raises red flags for me, and I tend to be more critical of of worship, because it it pretends or purports to do something that secular music does not. Verse 3, Jude tells us, this is what I'm writing to you about. This is the point. And then in verse 4, he tells us why. Now, here's why I'm writing it. In verse 4, he says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. We touched on this a bit last week, so I'm not going to labor here for very long. But basically, there are people in the church fellowshipping in the church, taking communion with the saints, participating in baptism, teaching the scriptures, and I'm going to put that in quotation fingers, basically enjoying all of the earthly benefits of being a part of the body of Christ, but they in fact are not Christian. They don't believe like Christians, and they don't act like Christians. And Jude condemns them, calling them ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny Christ as Lord. So here's the the logical progression so far. I know we're not very far in this letter, but it's important to follow the, the intent of the author. If we follow the progression, so far we have a structure that looks something like this. He says, hi, I'm Jude, the servant of Jesus. That's why you should listen to me, because I serve Jesus. He said, now I want to write to you to appeal to you to contend for the faith. I wanted to write about our mutual salvation, but I need to warn you to preserve the purity of the doctrine because there are ungodly people in your fellowship and you are allowing them to twist things. And then in verse 5, he starts to tell us why this is so urgent. Back up to verse 4 just for a second. Jude says, that long ago, these people, these ungodly people who have crept in, long ago they were destined for this condemnation. Now, this is the condemnation that was already written about. And these, beginning in verse 5, are the historical examples of judgment that were visited on those who were given the truth, but yet they abandoned the truth. Let me put it in simpler terms. What Jude is about to show us in the next few verses is the certainty of God's judgment against those who abandon the truth. Those who twist and pervert God's grace along the way and ultimately deny the Lord Jesus. He is about to show us that certainty and He is also going to show us our need to persevere 
and endure to the end. So he gives us three historical examples. In verse 5, we have the first one, example number one, the unbelief of Israel. He says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now this is something that they once knew. So they would have been taught this, they knew this, when they were brought into the faith. They were taught about the the redemptive story in the Old Testament. So they once knew it, but they needed to be reminded of it. Sometimes we need to be reminded of more than God's love for us. We need to be reminded of His holiness and His righteousness. Love without righteousness leads to all kinds of sinful things. It leads to a a corrupt vision and a corrupt definition of what love actually is. And that leads you into all manner of unrighteousness. So we need to be reminded that God loves us deeply, but His love is a righteous love. And it is a holy love. We need to be reminded that He commands us to be holy because He is holy. And that the stakes are very high for us in this regard. Jude says, you need to be reminded. And then he's reminding them of what happened to the Israelites way back in Numbers chapter 14. If you remember this story, the Lord had brought the Israelites out of Egypt. He parted the sea and destroyed the enemy that chased them. They walked across on dry ground, the Bible says. He led them by day and night with pillars of fire and smoke. They heard him speak in a thunderous voice from Mount Sinai. They received his miraculous care and provision daily. They ate the very bread of heaven, manna. They didn't have to plant it. They didn't have to cultivate it. They didn't have to till the fields or prepare the soil. All they had to do was harvest and eat. The Lord brought them to the edge of the promised land at Kadesh Barnea. And you remember, they sent 12 spies out to get a look at the land and bring back a report. And 10 of them brought back an evil report. They said, we are grasshoppers in our own sight. There are giants in the land. Now, If your faith is in a holy God, a miraculous God who works miracles and does great things, and when He speaks, it is, a God who is true to His word, then when the the spies went out to spy the land that the Lord had promised them and said, this is your land, and they go and they see that the land is inhabited by giants, the report that had come back should have been one that sounded like glory be to God for this will be a truly miraculous victory. There are giants in the land and we are as grasshoppers, but God has promised. This will truly, this should have given them all the more cause for praise. And for two of them, it did. But for the 10, it did not. They chose to not trust the Lord and then all of Israel fell with their lie. 
that God is not a God of His Word, that God is not strong enough to prevail, that God's promises are not yes and amen. God has led us out here to die. Didn't they complain about that before? Have you not led us out here to die? Would that we could go back to Egypt and eat the leeks and the onions, and how long did God forbear with them over their murmuring and complaining? They did not believe. They did not trust God. They had no faith in Him. They trembled in fear and denied the Lord's promise, denied Him as Lord and Creator. If you're Lord, you're sovereign. So what I say goes. And to say, no, Lord, I, I I don't buy it. You're saying you're not in control. After all they'd been through, all they'd seen from God, miraculous things they'd seen, God proven Himself over and over again, and yet when it came time to enter into their promised land, the land of their rest and peace, the land that God prepared for them, flowing with milk and honey, they balked at His promise, and they scoffed at His promise, and they said, we don't trust you, Lord. We don't trust the Lord. So Jude tells us that the Lord destroyed those who did not believe. Rest assured, unbelief will not go unpunished. The condemnation has already been written. If salvation is by grace grace through faith, trust in Jesus, then our faith needs to remain sound and strong and not wavering. Psalm 95 tells us how the Lord reacted to those unbelievers in Israel. Psalm 95 verse 10 says, For 40 years I've loathed that generation. That means I was grieved by them. I I was troubled by them for 40 years. They are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Amen. And you remember, that whole generation died out. There were just a few people that were allowed to enter into the promised land, those who remained faithful to the promise. We learn from this passage in Psalms that it, it wasn't a condemnation that was just, you don't get to go into the promised land. They shall not enter my rest. Their souls were condemned. A couple of lessons that we learn from this example that Jude gives us. Number one is the certainty of judgment for unbelief. People of Israel, they started out from Egypt well enough. They were obedient in the first Passover. Trusted God through that. Boy, what a scary night that must have been when the angel of death passed over the houses. If you were covered, then you were covered. Can you imagine the people waking up and them hearing the wails and the screams of their Egyptian neighbors when they found out that their firstborn had passed and just having to sit through it. Can you imagine the faith it took in, in the blood of a lamb over your doorpost? The faith and obedience. They were obedient through the waters. But by and by, as they met trial after trial, their faith faltered. They refused time and again to trust God their deliverer, and their provider. It makes me wonder how many things and how many times and how many ways must God show Himself true to us before we trust Him in the tough things. 
These are the same ones who questioned God's motives and His wisdom. Did He bring us out here to die? I wish we had never left Egypt. Until one day they were standing at the door of their deliverance into the promised land. And they said, we won't go because God can't be trusted. They had so many blessings from God along the way, but they did not endure to the end because they didn't believe in His promise or His power. If your faith is in a faltering God, you won't endure to the end. You won't. I think you wrote about it this morning in your little blog post that you do, that um, you, you have to be anchored, and your anchor has to be solid. Amen. Amen. And that's what gets you through seasons and changes and, and tough times and trials and, and tribulations. The second lesson is that we must endure to the end. We should learn that we must follow Jesus to our dying breath. Amen. Amen. We should never find ourselves among those who do not believe. Think back to the certain people that Jude is talking about in, in his letter. He said certain people have crept in. They were in the church. They may have started out well enough like the Israelites. They may have had a, a moment or even a season of faith probably witnessed and testified by others in the congregation. That's why they were welcomed in the congregation. That's why they were allowed to to rise up in the congregation. But ultimately, by and by, just like the Israelites, they refused to trust God at His Word, and so they began to deny His Lordship. It may be subtle, just like the Israelites at Kadesh Barnea. If you think about where they had come from and what they had been through, it is unlikely that they would have flat out said, we are not God's people and He is not our God. Especially after the issue with the, the golden calf. Amen. Amen. Especially after what happened with that. They, they learned that we're not going to trifle with that. So it's very unlikely they would have just flat out denied the Lord. Not with their mouth. Not with their confession. But in their hearts, they denied Him as Lord. They refused to trust Him. Do you remember from our our study of James, back in James chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love Him. The man who remains steadfast. For when he has stood, he'll receive the crown. I was talking to somebody the other day about living a righteous life. And I mentioned that sometimes there are great difficulties along the way. Amen. Amen. We've even talked about this before, about is it, is it better to please God or please man? And the Apostle Paul tells us, if, I, if I'm trying to please man, I'm no longer a servant of Christ. I'm not working to please God. God isn't the, the Lord to me anymore. Sometimes... Trying to please the Lord with a heart to please Him, to live righteously according to the will of God will put you in conflict with what man wants. Amen. Amen. With what flesh wants. And, and, and you, you will look at it and you'll think, I don't know the right way out. If, if I make this choice and I please God, then I, yes, I've, I've pleased the Lord, but if I go this other direction, then all hell will break loose. It may feel that way sometimes. 
Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're the ones that, where we get that phrase, it's better to please man than it is to, or please God than it is to please man. You know, they were told, either you bow down and you worship, or I'm going to throw you into the, the fiery furnace. And they said, well, I mean, what choice do we have? I mean, I can't imagine being in that situation. How difficult that must have been. We're going to trust God. It may be that He will save us. And that look at the language they use. It may be that He will save us. So they were prepared to go into the fire, trusting the Lord, and it may be that He didn't. They were prepared for the fire of hell, right? The, just the burning, torturous consequence of saying no to man and yes to God. It may be. We don't know. I mean, who knows the ways of the Lord? I mean, His ways are higher than our ways. We're going to trust in Him. We're going to put our life fully in His hands. We're going to trust Him. It may be that He will save us. And don't you know He did? Don't you know He did? And don't you know He will? Example number two. The rebellious angels. So back to Jude verse 6. He says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, has kept, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So Jude is, Jude's letter is somewhat famous for bringing up obscure, controversial points. There's another obscure point later in the letter that we'll, we'll have to cover. We'll have to get to it. But right here is one of those obscure, controversial points. Because Jude talks about angels who sinned, and they are currently imprisoned in darkness as we wait for the day of judgment. There's a bit of controversy as to the identity of these angels, and specifically what their sin was. I'll try to show you through the Scripture what I believe Jude is referring to. But suffice it to say that these angels rebelled against God through sexual sin. We know this because of the following verse. Verse 7, Jude says that just as Sodom and Gomorrah, they likewise indulged in sexual morality. So likewise, so their sin was like the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. So the sin of the angels here, very similar to that of, of those cursed cities. This is where Jude is coming from when he said that those ungodly people in verse 4 pervert the grace of God into sensualities, things that please the flesh. God's okay with it as long as it feels good. God's okay with it as long as it makes me happy because after all, God is after my happiness. No. <laughs> no. This is what Jude is railing against, what he's warning us about, that kind of idea. Let's get back to the angels, though. Jude says that these angels, they, they did not stay within their own positions of authority. There are only two instances in the Bible where we hear about angels sinning, in the Old Testament in particular. Uh, it speaks of angels sinning. There was the, the uh, original rebellion uh, when the angels fell with Satan in Isaiah 14. Revelation refers to this original rebellion. And then there's an account in Genesis 6. And I'll be honest with you, Genesis 6 is a bit of a controversial passage too 
There's a, uh, but I think this is what Jude is alluding to, and I think Jude gives us some clarity about what's going on in Genesis, the first few verses of Genesis 6. So let's, let's read it, and, so that, and, and we'll, we'll walk through it. So Genesis 6, verse 1, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. So there's a significant debate over who, who are these sons of God? Who are the sons of God? The debate centers around the question of, are these, are these angelic beings? Or are these, is this just another way of saying those humans who followed after God? I think Jude and his warning about these angels and what he says about how their sin is in the same manner as the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, sexual immorality, that this makes Genesis 6 a little more clear. Jude says that they left their proper dwelling, did not keep their position of authority. I believe he's referring to Genesis 6. He tells us that the sons of God were in fact rebellious angels, who engaged in an unnatural union with the daughters of men, namely with human women. I don't think he's talking about men who believed. That doesn't seem like a character trait of men who believe. We know that it was sinful. We know it involved sexual immorality and unnatural desire on the part of the angels. It's not worth speculating the details about all this. There's just some facts that we don't know, but that's what we do know. We can also add another piece of knowledge from Jude 6, and that's that God reserved a special judgment for these sons of God. There's a judgment reserved for all mankind who don't believe and who abandon God and who sin against God. There was a special judgment reserved for these particular sons of God. He chose to imprison them in everlasting chains in darkness until the day of judgment. So what we should learn from Jude, again, I think there's two lessons, very similar to the first example. One, God's judgment is certain. We can be assured by this example from Jude that everyone will be judged. No matter where we start, or what our spiritual status has been in the past. We can be sure that those who pervert the grace of God and deny His Lordship and cause others to do so will be judged in this way. These angels, consider the angels. Look, they were angels. This means that they beheld the face and the glory and the majesty and the righteousness, and the holiness of God without veil. Amen. Amen. Not through a glass dimly, as, as, as Paul tells us that we see Him. They saw Him face to face. And yet, they chose unnatural desire over the Lord of all creation. They saw the glory of God. This is the same glory that the Bible tells us if we are to look on it fully, we would perish. And they were able to look on it fully, and yet they chose unnatural desire over the Lord of all creation. And now they're in everlasting chains. It's a dire warning for us. 
The angels couldn't make it. What makes you think you will? But I see in this dire warning a very glorious hope. The angels stood in the presence of God and they fell into judgment. So how they started isn't how they finished. And that cuts both ways. We stand in the judgment of God and through hope and faith in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, we will behold His glory face to face. We're judged guilty in our sins or we are judged righteous in Christ. That's what we have to understand. That reward is judgment. We have been judged in Christ righteous. Hallelujah. Lesson number two. We must continue to walk with Jesus. I'll make this point very quickly. If the past spiritual experience of these angels didn't guarantee their future spiritual state, neither does ours. We must stay vigilant. Discipline, discipleship is a discipline. It is a way of life. It's not a one-time prayer. And I feel like in our evangelistic efforts in the Sorry about that. Our evangelistic efforts in, in North America, we have we've abandoned the latter Amen. in large Amen. part. Uh, we've had such a seeker-sensitive movement over the last 30, 40 years to just get them in the door, right? Just get them in the door, get them to make a commitment, and once they make the commitment, then the, where's the development after that? There's not much spiritual development beyond that. Just get them in, get them saved, get them in, get them saved. Let them say yes to Jesus, yes to Jesus, yes to Jesus. That's wonderful. That's the first step, though. And don't get me wrong, you're justified when you're justified. You say yes to Jesus, you're good. But sanctification takes time. If you were to say yes to Jesus and then die, glory be to God. You know, you get to go see Him. Hallelujah. You say yes to Jesus today, you need to walk with Him tomorrow. And the next day, and, the ne- and every other day after that, because what's going to happen? Trials and temptations will come, and you'll either show that you are connected to the vine or you are not. Amen. Third example. Oh, I've got to hurry. Sodom and Gomorrah. We've already mentioned it uh, because Jude thinks, or he links this sin to the, the sin that the angels committed, telling us that it, was, uh, that it involved this, this same kind of sexual morality. Jude 7, he says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So there, there were a number of things going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, Right? We learn about their sin, the extent of their sin, some of it in Ezekiel 16, verse 49. The writer says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. Now, I want you to notice that nothing about sexual morality is mentioned here. But this is important to understand. She and her daughters had pride. One, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. So the, the one, here's what I want you to take from this. 
This shows us that Sodom and Gomorrah were prosperous cities. Excess of food and, what did it say, prosperous ease. So they, had to, they were able to take it easy. They had an easy life in Sodom and Gomorrah. They were rich, wealthy people. Lots of food to eat. They didn't have a, a care in the world in terms of, of meeting their, their physical needs. Wealthy, great material possessions. But this is not the sin that Jude calls them out for. The, the fact that they were prideful and that they wouldn't share their wealth with those who are in need, Jude didn't call them out for that. Jude is specifically referencing what happened in Genesis 19. I won't take the time to read all of it because it's a long story, but you remember the story. Suffice it to say that, that their most conspicuous sin in Genesis 19 that was pointed out was an unnatural sexual desire, specifically homosexuality and all that is twisted up in it. Jude tells us that they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. That's the most conspicuous sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. So that's where we get our term sodomites from. Once again, two lessons. Number one, possessions do not equal position. Including Sodom and Gomorrah here is a clear message that no matter how richly these ungodly people may have been blessed in the past, those that pervert the grace of God into sensuality will face judgment. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah were richly blessed in their possessions, there was no indication of their righteousness or even their favor before God. We, we have a habit of doing that. We'll equate financial success and prosperity with righteousness, just as the old, old Israelites did. The Pharisees did. You know, if you're financially blessed, if you're doing well, then God must be pleased with you. Don't we do that with churches? Lord must be working there because there are a thousand people going to that church. When what's being spewed from the pulpit is anything but the gospel. Numbers don't. Prosperity is not the measure of righteousness. Jesus had multitudes that followed him, but only 12 were actually in his inner circle. And of them, only three were in the inner inner circle. Lesson number two, if prosperity does not save Sodom and Gomorrah, it will not save us. Amen. We must continue walking in Christ. He is our salvation. It's such a relevant example for our time today. I mean, how many well-established churches, wealthy well-established churches have abandoned biblical teachings on human sexuality, on morality, in favor of the way of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this stands as an example. It doesn't matter how big those churches are, how global those denominations are, how much money they have in their coffers, how beautiful their temples are. Their prosperity, their past success will not save them. Amen. Some of these denominations, some of these churches, have their roots in sound biblical doctrine. And the Lord blessed them with an outpouring of His Spirit on them. And they were able to evangelize legions and, and thousands of people across the globe. And yet, in lighter times, they have abandoned 
and twisted and perverted the grace of God. A little twist here, a little compromise there. And what remains for them is a judgment not unlike Sodom and Gomorrah. I think these verses, uh, in these verses that we've just looked at, Jude is he's laboring to tell us why. Why is this a big deal? Why does it matter? Why is it so important that we have sound doctrine? Why is it so important that we contend for the faith? It's because all of these things that were written about long ago, they will creep in. You know, he says they crept in unnoticed, Amen. right? Amen. Unnoticed among the churches. Amen. Unnoticed, so, so unnoticed that he had to say, hey guys, look out for this. Through careful reading, I think it's plain to see just how wicked and how backwards these examples are that Jude has given us, and yet he says they creep in unnoticed. Just a little, little move with a needle here, and you move it again, and you move it again. Before you know it, we are a people full of unbelief, rebellion, and all manner of immorality. Here's the thing that I want you to leave with today. In every one of these examples, though, as egregious and terrible as they are, God put His glory on display. God sent the invitation in every one of these to trust Him. He proved His trustworthiness in every one of these. With Israel, gosh, it's too many to count. Over and over and over, in miracle after miracle, he proved his trustworthiness. He invited them, trust me. With the angels, from the very beginning, they saw him in all of his glory. Look, trust me. Sodom and Gomorrah and their abundant blessing. The Bible teaches us that the rain and the seasons and the, the fruit of the vine is given by God. If they were prosperous, it's because God prospered them. In all of this, he's inviting, trust me. It is God's desire that everyone come to faith through Christ, turn from wickedness, live in the righteousness that we've been given in Christ. So if you find yourself with the Israelites. I just don't know that I can trust God. Let me assure you that He is faithful to the end. Amen. Amen. He is faithful even to death on the cross. Trust Him and see the salvation of the Lord. Amen. You find yourself with the rebellious angels. You know, I grew up in church. I've been in church a long time. Church is part of my culture. It's what I see. It's what I know. I've known it my whole life. But I just, it's just not happening for me anymore. This is just, I don't think it's for me anymore. Let me assure you, brother, sister, that Jesus stands ready to forgive. He is ready to reassure you of his importance in your life. Seek Him and He will be found. If you find yourself in bondage to sexual immorality, which is so much more prevalent these days than we want to admit, 
or any other manner of of besetting sin, let me assure you that Christ is the rescuer and the redeemer. If you remember the story of Moses, how the whole situation with Sodom and Gomorrah transpired, Abraham, um, he stood in the gap. He pled with the Lord. Lord, if you could find just five people, would you spare them? In other words, Lord, if there's any hint of repentance at all, would you rescue them from your righteous judgment? And let me tell you that the Lord will. will. If there's a hint of repentance in you at all, He will rescue you out of that bondage to sin if you only trust Him. Jude says, contend for the faith. There's, there are some unnoticed things among you. But God is able. There's condemnation that awaits you if, you. if you don't trust in the Lord, trust Him. He is able. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We come to you thanking you, Lord, for your word, for your admonition from Jude. Lord, that we keep our sights on you and that we keep our minds focused and our hearts set on the mark of the high calling of Christ. Father, I ask that you help us as, as we, we live our lives to live them rightly before you. Lord, that we may be not only a testimony of your goodness to the world, but that we may testify of Jesus rightly. That we may wear his, his banner, Lord, in, without wearing it in vain. Let us not be counted among those who don't believe. Let us not be counted among those who are rebellious. Let us not be counted among those who seek pleasures, temporary pleasures above your eternal treasure. Lord, we love you and I pray, I pray, Lord, that you you rest upon us and be the joy of our heart. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name.